You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Linton-Meyer. My guest for episode 22 is John Langford, a key member in the long-running punk-slash-country-slash-folk-slash-artsy-whatever band Mekons. You are right now hearing the Mekon song Memphis, Egypt on their album The Mekons Rock and Roll from 1989. We're going to be talking about Lil Ray of Light, the last track off his Here Be Monsters 2014 solo album, and turning back to Mekon's This Funeral is for the Wrong Corpse, recorded in 1991. This is the version released on the 1999 compilation I Have Been to Heaven and Back. And we're going to turn to the Mekon's Cocker Mouth from the Natural album, 2007. And we'll end up by listening to Going Down in History, the title track from the brand new Waco Brothers album. Very prolific, super interesting guy. For more information about this podcast, please check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Here I am with John Langford. Thanks for doing this. Hey, I won't say good afternoon because I don't know what time of day it is in your world. On the listener's world, yes. It could be any time. I'm in the same time zone as you, so don't worry <laughs> about that. Let's get pretty quickly to the first song, Lil Ray Light from Here Be Monsters 2014, credited to John Langford and Skull Orchard, which I was very happy to see at least part of that band. You were calling it John Langford and Skull Orchard, but it was just you in the rhythm section. Is that the normal touring? On this record, it was actually, there was a guitarist called Jim Elkington. Yep very heavily involved, and Gene Cook, a violin player, and Tony Newsom, who's a great singer. And we toured on the old Devils album, and then when we came off doing that, we decided we should make a record, which was much more like a band album. So I think every other John Langford and Skull Orchard record had been more or less me with the rhythm section of Alan Dowdy and Joe Camarillo. Who are super entertaining to watch. I gotta say, I, haven't, I don't know if I've seen a bass player in particular yeah. It's more entertaining to watch on stage. I know. It's good because nobody looks at me when I'm playing it. I thoroughly enjoy it. He looks like he could be in Fugazi or something, you know, just really sawing into that thing, going down to yeah. the kneeling stance. It makes me laugh when people call us a country band when you see him <laughs> doing his thing. <laughs> so before we play it, do you have any opening words to explain what this is about? I'm sure it's purely autobiographical, straightforward, sincere. No, it's not. Auto- this song, actually, this is a this is a good one to make the point that this isn't at all autobiographical. I would say it's scathing, and it's about about a sort of mentality in the music business. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> a mentality that's just arrogance in the first part, but then by the third verse, something weirder is going on. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's some anecdotes in there that came my way. You can work it out for yourself. That's why I don't, I don't think it's much fun explaining songs too closely. All right. Never found a subject So much to my liking All the puff pieces and pecs of the week Never got it right Never came close They always missed the point I'm disappointed Misrepresenting me they can't see my head, there's so many mansions Full of blind insights A beautiful poetry Now all the doors are locked And I'm the only one with keys No one else deserves the chance to solve And he's puzzled to rest Be on your grasp, be on your Be on your grasp, be on your help. Be on your reach, be on your grasp, be on your help. Be on your reach, be on your grasp, be 
for me. Gotta be begging for some hits as I read my own obituary. But there was no one else that I did. No one better than me. There was no one else better than me. Beyond your reach, beyond your grasp, beyond your help. You took on the challenge of, certainly not the first time you've done this, but how can I do the chord progression that people have heard most in the world and still make it super entertaining, which this is like the most happy bubbly. I guess there's a reason that that chord progressions use that often. And yet, you know, it doesn't necessarily make you think of a particular other song. Yeah, I mean, it's got a feel that we were talking a lot about kind of early 70s rock music, you know, British rock music, like the band and stuff like that, the way we sounded when we played live. I wanted something to capture that a little bit. And I like songs that have the same chords going over and over again. A lot of reggae songs do that. You can show off by having lots of flashy chord progressions, but sometimes it's great to have a song that's just really, really repetitive. Well, and that seems to work very well with the Mekons, which the other two songs we're going to listen today are from them, because you have so many people, and it's just easier to thresh out an arrangement with that many people having a simple chord progression here. It's just... Well, I'll tell you, that song I wasn't going to do. It wasn't going to be on the album, and I threw it in late at night. And the bass player wanted to go home. I said, no, let's just try this one more thing. And it was the, kind of the old Bob Dylan trick where you throw something at people that they've never heard. So no one had ever heard the track. And I just felt, because it was just the three chords, no one could really complain they didn't know it. <laughs> I said, just follow me. It just goes like this. And then the drummer is a very a very sharp fellow, yeah. Joe Camarillo. And he just 
he nailed it like the first or second take and and everybody else was whoa whoa we got to do that again we got to do that again and i think i let alan do it again when he'd gone home and taken it away i think maybe he overdubbed his bass or at least patched it up because he he has a tendency to play very very complicated bass parts to what are very very simple songs which saves me a job because i'm just like bashing out the chords but jim elkington played guitar live on that and we had many discussions about why i thought we should keep it and why he shouldn't overdub it and he was like said but he said there's one bit what i've I said, there's one bit i just feel like it's like i fall off the end of the guitar and it's gone like sounds fantastic you'll never do that anything like that again so that main riff that do was just him jamming at at the time yeah like the second time we played it and the, Tony and Jean did their vocals. Uh, Jean played piano on that, which was nice. She just played that little funny little line all the way through. And then she was working out a vocal part and they had bits to answer me. And it went back in afterwards because it was a noisy room and then they did their, their vocals. So. Well, I've noticed this on the Mekon stuff too, that obviously you have people that can play elaborate parts, but to do a piano part that's kind of that small and tasteful and that's a talent. Gene is very minimal. That's what I like about Gene Cook. I've played with lots of musicians, and I don't think I've ever had anyone who sits out as much in songs as she does. Even when we're doing a duo show, and I'm like hoping she's going to join in, because it feels kind of lonely just bashing the guitar. She waits for her moments, and it's not a one, two, three, four, we're all in till the end with Gene. She's very, very good with dynamics and only doing what's exactly necessary. All right, so the Barkley McKay Hammond B3, that was an afterthought then? That was an overdub? Yeah, that was recorded in England. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Then we need to sell this a little a little more, make it more. I don't know, one of the reviews I was reading of the album said that you were singing over early 60s Bob Dylan, and I think it's the B3 that probably made him say that. <laughs> wow, I quite like that. We were quite interested in what you could do with the sounds of a little rock band to make this album. And I think it, it worked out very well. I liked the idea of sending the tracks to someone far away at the end for them to just do what they do on. Barkley's played on a lot of Waco Brothers stuff. He's played with me on a bunch of Pine Valley Cosmonauts things. And we have a band together in Wales called the Men of Gwent. So he has a very nice piano and a very nice Hammond B3 in his studio in Leeds. So I just decided he could do whatever he wanted on it. <laughs> That's my production style, as I just say, play something on this. And he knew exactly what to do. So do you find yourself fixing things in the mix or just really what he sent you is what we've got here? Yeah, pretty much. Okay, so that goes for whether it's remote or local, I, for the most I part. I think my job as a producer is to pick people I trust and then let them do whatever they want to do, rather than be too authoritarian or tell people what not to do. I was listening, for instance, to the Killer Shrews album today because I had Gary Lucas on the show not too long ago. Well, I have to say, I haven't listened to the Killer Shrews record <laughs> possibly this century. So, it was uh, 19, 1993. Okay. I mean, and yeah. that was one that was just a one off thing. Was that intended to be a one off thing, or was that because you couldn't be? I mean, he also was a guy who, right at the start of the interview, said, Look, I don't want to overanalyze this thing. I'm not going to tell you what mode I played in. I'm not going to, like, that's not the way I think of the music, and I'm not going to deconstruct it that way. So, also had a similar just everybody get out and be natural and I'll work with people I trust. Why didn't that project work? I'm excited. I was excited about the one album. Oh, uh, well, yeah, there's a lot of other things going on. Okay. And we took it on tour in Europe the following year. We didn't really play many gigs in America with it. 
And it started out as a drum machine and me, Tony and Gary playing some stuff together. And it kind of grew into something more with like a full band. And I don't know, it lost its charm for me. Yeah, okay. So the reason I brought it up in this context was just, have there been situations you've played in so many bands where you find like, no, you want to just let everybody be natural and do what they do, but it's not working for you. Uh, I think the record works quite well, but it was a difficult band to tour with. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really enjoy the touring aspect of it. Sure. There was a number of reasons for that. There was some sort of disasters that occurred on the tour. It wasn't really musical. It was just the mid-90s were you know, playing club gigs in Germany. Uh, it was kind of hard work. I don't think my head was really a place for having yet another band to go off on tour. I, did, I remember not really wanting to go on tour and being persuaded to do it and then being kind of glad when it was done. So like with this band that did Little Ray of Light, you haven't toured with that Well, that, that band unit. doesn't really exist okay. anymore. So when we toured with that before, we oh, did right, that right, right. with the old Devils album came out. And then Jim Elkington's wife, well, he, he and his wife had a baby. Then Gene had a baby. <laughs> <laughs> a drummer had heart surgery. Tony got a job on a TV show. So it was... I can't really afford to pay people enough to stop them getting on with their lives. So it became, it's interesting actually because it brought up a whole new bunch of things together. I went out on tour basically on my own to promote the album. I didn't have the full band. Oh. Some gigs where we had a full band. Jean was great, although we found out she was pregnant in the middle of the tour. But she hasn't stopped her at all. She just keeps going. But again, it was just the practicalities of being on the road are very difficult it's actually easier sometimes for me to just play on my own or with one other person sure yeah so i don't know no that band it was a great sounding i was very disappointed when that record came out and then we couldn't really have a long tour with the band i enjoy longish tours but you know there's reasons why i can't do that as well i've got kids and uh, it's nice to go out when the mecons go out we usually book about three weeks and we get it all together and but after the first couple of gigs everything's making really good sense and then it's really great fun to be able to get on stage and not be thinking about everything every night and be not worrying about messing up the songs become kind of second nature and a lot of projects I'm involved in, it's harder to do that. I will say with the Waco Brothers, it's the other way altogether, where we don't really think about it at all. Things just happen, and that's really fantastic. We always go out, and we just don't have a set list. We don't rehearse. We just hit the stage, and what happens, happens. And I find that very refreshing. There's a lot of other projects I've been involved in that have been very complicated and difficult to navigate and work out what's going on, so... The Mecon tour last summer in July, we played a decent length tour and we did an album as well. And it was great. I don't know why we couldn't work out why is this so easy, but it was. It felt maybe we'd all kind of grown up at last or something, but it had a really good feel to the tour. So, so yeah, you've just made it clear that you're in three different projects at least at a time. I mean, it seems like, is it a matter of the Mekon stuff gets planned out far enough in advance because people are on different continents? and then... Yeah, we have to really seriously plan that. The Wacos thing is much more like, somebody's asked us to pay, can we do this? Yeah, let's do something else the next day and a couple of things the day before, maybe. And it's a more relaxed and spontaneous thing. And I read somewhere that you had said that the solo albums were sort of your dumping ground for songs that didn't fit in the other projects. This is a really damn strong album, though, I gotta say. Thank you. Well, you know, I worked on it for quite a long time it was about three years of songwriting and, and i did work very closely with jim elkington and gene and tony 
almost as an acoustic mm-hmm. little group before we decided to make it into a big rock album. <laughs> but, you know, I always had that in mind. There was always a few songs that I wanted to do with the full band, and then there were some other songs. There's a load of songs that, that you know, not included that are still sitting around that me and Gina scratching our heads and looking at and thinking it might be a kind of Gene Cook, John Langford. Ah. Acoustical record that we'll put some things on. So, when you write a song like this, was it all just one spurt of lyrics, or were like the last verse? Little Ray of Light was definitely, it was around for a long time, and it, we tried different things with it. I remember I played it with Jim with a totally different tune. I've got some demos of it, it's terrible, it sounds awful. Oh man, I don't know. And suddenly, just using that little three chord trick it came it made sense to me and then i kind of just told the other guys we're going to record this now you can't go home <laughs> and it, it worked out and then everybody said oh that's the best track on the album so it was good to the thing to do but it's a happy accident but i think a lot of the best songs that i come up with are often i just write down a load of stuff really fast and then i don't change it and i don't know how that happens or whether it's your subconscious writing it rather than your, the front part of your brain. But those songs seem to work better. If I spend a long time working on a song, it's usually because I'm not happy with it, and I usually don't make it much better by spending a long time working on it. Yeah, I've written a bunch of songs that same way, although I usually end up crossing out half of it. So like, it's all written in one stretch, but not everything that was written in that stretch makes it. Yeah, it's better to do that. I think that's a better... It's like, like you said, with mixing a song as well, I'll often we'll have you know people play extra things and put bits on top, and the mixing will also a lot of the time be removing things. And then you want to have like an alternate mix that just has the things you removed. <laughs> no, we never do that. <laughs> I mean, actually, I've had alternate lyrics come out of bits I've taken out of one song. I've gone back to the notebook and said, "No, why did I take that bit out? That's quite good." And then another song will come out of that. So. So I'm not going to make you explain the lyrics. You just said you don't want to do that. But what pissed you off enough? Is this a particular, I don't know, if I write something critical like this, it's because it's some tendency that I detect in myself that I hate. And then I have to just like make it into a character and write about that. But it also could just be some particular jerk that I (laughs) am reacting to. In this case, it was a situation that I was in, which I thought was both sad and kind of vaguely disgusting. So, All right. All right. And how does that connect, though, with the last verse, though? I mean, you've got a straightforward, arrogant musician kind of thing, and then you have someone who's phoning in a bomb threat. I'm just I'm trying to get what the logical threat is between those two things. Um. <laughs> is that just, that's an anecdote? That's just something? It's a little piece of anecdotal detail, which I don't know. I don't know how to explain it, really. Like I said, I don't want to analyze it too much, because it's, <laughs> that actually happened to a friend of mine. So I'll leave it at that. A friend of mine from Northern Ireland was was actually, I wouldn't say apolitical exactly, but certainly wasn't in the IRA. Basically, he's Protestant, but certainly wasn't a supporter of the Protestant paramilitaries, was confronted in a restaurant and shouted at for being an IRA terrorist because of his accent by someone we all know. Gotcha. Okay, so that's all I was trying to get at, whether this thing at the end was actually connected with the part at the beginning. It's absolutely, it's completely connected. Okay, wow. Okay, so we'll leave that a mystery for the audience to fill in. You know, it's just kind of banal to actually explain the whole thing. So, <laughs> I, I, But that really happened to a friend of mine, and we were both kind of shocked and horrified. There's someone you kind of programmed to love and admire. 
Was it Bill Cosby? I'll, let's just say it was Bill Cosby. <laughs> it wasn't Bill Cosby. So I see in my CD copy, I bought a CD at your show of Here We Monsters. You made these drawings for each one of them, and there's this cool, for this song, a sort of a mandala with a sun in the middle, and the what do they call the man from the Renaissance? Where the yeah, the guy who's the, the perfect, yeah, the perfect <laughs> golden, yeah. It's about someone who thinks they're perfect, you know. It's all right. It was only just now looking at it that I noticed the guy in the middle because it's not a very clearly outlined. I was just thinking this is a cool <laughs> orangey, maybe bird shapes. Yeah, yeah there's a little Renaissance guy in there. Yeah. All right. Well, then I don't have to ask how that's connected to the song because that's clear enough. Well, the sun shines out of his asshole, basically. <laughs> well, let's connect it to our second song. So we're getting to the Mekons, what you're famous for. Sorry if I've been evasive. I could probably be more, I'd be more. Uh, Direct with the Mekons. Well, hopefully, I mean, this is a very direct song. It's called This Funeral is for the Wrong Corpse, and I picked the long version that we're going to play for people, that you have a version on the 1991, The Curse of the Mekons. This version is on the I've Been to Heaven and Back, Hen's Teeth. On Hen's Teeth, yeah. this is. I much prefer this version. This only got chopped down because there literally wasn't enough space to fit all the songs we had on vinyl and we couldn't afford a double album. So this is the original version of the song and it was chopped down heavily for the curse because of time constraints. I was very disappointed because it had things in it that I really liked. Chopped down meaning they actually edited your performance or you just did another version that was shorter? No, no, it's the same version, oh. but with tape edits, took a razor blade to it. All right. Uh, we did it because we couldn't physically fit on the vinyl. I didn't want to drop the track because I thought the track was important. And it pretty much speaks for itself in terms of what the chorus is. And I've read that you're well known for your political outspokenness. So here you go. A pian to socialism or less singing the praises of socialism and a critique of the capitalist alternative. Okay, so, let's call it okay, that. Let's call
I know that on the third song that we're going to play, Cockermouth from a later album, that that was pretty much live. At this point, was the band recording this kind of stuff pretty much live with all these overdub guitars? That's just because you had three guitarists and they're not overdubbed. They're just live or? This funeral, there's yes. probably me and Tom playing guitar. And I think there's some weird overdub guitar where I've worked out if I stood behind the mixing desk and put the guitar through the studio speakers in the control room really loud. All these crazy, like, wah-wah effects occurred. Okay, that's what I was wondering about, because you've got the main... Yeah, that's an overdub. I was playing through a Vox AC-15 amplifier, which we had in the control room a lot of the time, and just disconnected the speaker and put it through the studio speakers. So the whole room became like this kind of throbbing, psychotic guitar chamber. I remember doing that vividly, and then the brass section came in afterwards, a bunch of guys from Manchester who'd been playing with Ed with the second and the Red Hot Pokers, and they came in. I had it in, in my mind it needed a brass section, so this was the, kind of one of the main reasons to have them play, but they ended up playing on a bunch of songs on the record as well. The time this record was made, was this was like 1990, so it was just after the Berlin Wall came down, mm-hmm. and the Soviet Union was kind of collapsing, and America was claiming victory. The New World Order was occurring, and... Uh, George W. Bush, not George H. Bush, whatever his name was. Yeah, was, H.W. Uh, yeah, he was claiming, you know, that history had essentially stopped, socialism was dead, and now we could all just be happy capitalists, and the whole world would now become capitalists, and American military might would be the guiding light to the sort of temple on the hill. And we've seen how well that worked out. <laughs> now, in terms of the writing of this, it's a lot of it's taken from a book by a South American writer called Eduardo Galeano. Ah. And I think that phrase, this funeral is for the wrong corpse, is a direct quote. I got a good idea from the Revenge of the Mekons movie I watched from 2012. At least some idea, we'll talk more about it when we get to the third song, about how you guys work now in terms of, at least you said, it's a commune, basically, right? As a creative... How do you want to brand it? How do you want to describe it? The Mekons essentially was a, an art project more than it was a group. It was a bunch of art students messing around with the idea of having a group. That's how it started. At some point, it turned into a real group with real musicians in it who could play really well. But essentially, what governs the way we act and the things we do is a mentality that goes right back to the beginning where we question the way a band should behave or could behave and say, why can't it do this? Why can't it do something else? So trying to get at like how lyrics like this or the chord progression, how this comes together. Is it a whole band can write together because they're all just kind of jamming together, which means really the guitarist came up. It's always very different. I think with this one, me and Tom were up in Leeds and we spent quite a lot of time putting stuff together. This wasn't on the original demos. We did went into a little studio in Leeds called Lion and we made a bunch of demos, some of which ended up on the album Wild and Blue is from that. And there's some other bits. The Curse of the Mekons sort of started there and we used part of that and then put drums and bass on it afterwards, which is tricky. <laughs> but I've got a feeling Funeral was half an idea and I kept wanting to make it longer and everybody else wanted to make it shorter and I lost. But... I found a cassette tape of the full mix, and that's what you just did. So Okay, so that's why it sounds different than the version of the other album, just because it's a different mix. It was just in a cardboard box on a cassette tape for many years, and it was kind of rescued. So was this one that, I mean, it's not terribly important in terms of who exactly did what, and I can understand the appeal of a band where you kind of never say, now this is the Tom song, and now this is the my song. I mean, you can 
one person sings one, but <laughs> well, people sometimes think because somebody sings something that it, maybe they wrote the words, and I would say that's not usually the case. And so, how does it kind of get decided? Just different people try it, and then it just sounds like okay, this, this is a Tom's Voice song. This is a yeah, definitely. That album, that whole album, The Curse of the Meekons, I can remember that pretty vividly making it. And yeah, there's lots of different things occurring on there that where it's the person singing it didn't necessarily write the words, I would say. And I take it that's true even for the earliest stuff that I just saw you play Where Were You? I know that's kind of, it's the biggest Mekon hit from the early era, but it seems like that's one that you have an attachment to. Does that mean that it wasn't just something, one of the two singers that you had at the time? No, the lyrics were written by Mark White. He wrote the words for that. And then I think the tune, probably Tom and Kevin came up with the tune and Andy Corrigan, the other singer, sang it. Those things become irrelevant after a while. No, I totally feel that way. Whenever I play in a dual songwriter or whatever band, that even if I'm just playing bass on the other person's song, and then the band breaks up, and it feels like those were my songs too. And so, you know, that you're invested in them. If they become part yeah, of the group yeah. thing. No, for me, it's just it becomes a Mekon song. I, I mean, some songs I can't remember really where they came from or how we approached who would sing them. It's just normally the person who picks up the piece of paper and gets to the microphone first, you know. So, so I mean, really, this is two songs stuck together. So how did this slower part that in the shorter version only becomes the coda at the end with the horns, but really here you've got the whole, oh, we get to have the violin come back. We get to completely change the texture. And I, Yeah, there's a load of lyrics missing as well in the other version, which that's what I felt like it was long because it had to be. I didn't think there was any room to make it short. Where but. happiness is the taste of a sausage. Yeah. The most pointed critique seems to be in that section. Although I'm not sure that what an ex-Tractor fan, what that means. Oh. <laughs> that was actually, I think that was Kevin, Kevin's joke. Because, you know, you have an extractor fan, and it was about the fall of the uh, Soviet Union and how now we're all ex-Tractor fans. Oh, I see. See, because you like everyone in the joke, in the, was everyone in the East just loves their tractors, you know. They were proud of their tractors. It was a sort of stupid anti-Soviet joke. So we, we made it into, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> There's a lot of really stupid jokes that only amuse us on Recon's albums, but I will explain that one because it's, otherwise it's completely inexplicable. Would it be taboo to explain the end of that, the coup, what a scorcher, are you ashamed of your bum? <laughs> I think that was just on the front page of a newspaper while we were walking to the studio. All right, but included as another example of everywhere you look is some wretched form of consumerism or something. Yeah. All right. Having said that, now you're quoting the lyrics to me. I think there was a, if it was not that album, there was another album. So Kevin wasn't in the band at the time, but I think we had some kind of meeting with Kevin because he'd left the band in 88 and that record was made in 1990. But I think we, we sat around up in Leeds and we, we all had a kind of lyric power where we put down all the lyrics and then we all added to them and added really stupid jokes to them. And <laughs> so that was, you know, a good example of somebody might have an original idea or initial idea, but it becomes consumed by the group and then other people, even people who aren't in the band, get a say in what the final result is. So I've always found collaborating on lyrics particularly problematic. Like, I love it. I feel like I have a low enough 
ego that even though I like my lyrics, like I would love to have somebody else kind of workshop them and fix them and, and take out one line and put in something else to make them better. But I find when I try to do that to other people's, they tend not to like that. Like lyrics are personal. They're coming out of their soul or whatever. How do you avoid that? Is it just a matter of picking topics that are not personal in that way? Or- no, I don't think so. I just think we know when things don't work. So some people's role in the band is to churn stuff out and some other people's role is to edit and cut things out. So you know, Sally's very good at that, to say, take that out, take that out, take that out. It's very valuable, that process. Well, I suppose just having more than two. So it's not a fight between a power. When we did the Me album, I remember we sat and wrote all the words one night with about five of us and a couple of people that weren't even in the band. They just joined in and we wrote like 12 lyrics. We said, we need 12 lyrics for an album. Topic, blah, blah, blah. You know, and then everyone, it was like a committee, you know, but. It was actually hilarious. We actually had a really good time doing it. People were trying to outdo each other and be more and more outrageous. So that was kind of good. Yeah, that seems like a great project to be involved in. When that was your only output, was that an issue of, I don't see a lot of in your catalog, like, here's this love song that I did for my whatever, that to change it would be sacrilege or something. Like, are there any things that get introduced or that stuff would get pushed to a side project or something? The kind of ground rule with the Mekons is that nothing's precious and everything's up for grabs. And if somebody wants to veto or change something, that's fine. And have there been any songs then somebody introduced and it kind of got shifted around enough that they said, you know, I'm just going to record this on my solo album? Or I don't think so. Okay. Not, that I, not that I remember. So things, usually if something's gone into the you know sausage machine and it comes out wrong, it's just discarded. You know? I don't think I've ever taken anything. It was a left Mekon's leftover. I've done that with the Waco brothers, I have to say. <laughs> I guess I didn't even look at the credits to that to see how, is that a cooperative writing process or is that more like there are three of you and you're bringing your songs? With the Waco brothers, it's more like two of us now, really. Okay. Writing the songs and we don't even really play the songs to each other. We just trust that the other person has written good songs. The last album, we'd be in the studio and Dean would say, yeah, I've got this one, it goes like this. And we'd just start recording it. So and That's an advantage. So Waco Brothers is you know, a strictly kind of country western punk, <laughs> something like that. In my head, there is a kind of, when I write something for the Waco Brothers, I'm writing specifically for the Waco Brothers and I know what I want it to do. And with the Mekon, I don't really write anything specifically. We might start talking about themes or ideas or a sound. And then things will start slowly being generated, but they all like puddle that gets paddled around in by many people. So nothing emerges as it was initially intended. And then anything I've got left, anything I do spend a lot of time on, or maybe you know, things that just I can't see fit in with either, that becomes pretty much solo stuff. But even with that, I'm right now working on a project at the moment for a kind of solo album. It's another thing I'm doing with Tony Newsom and her friend Bethany Thomas. These two singers and we're writing stuff. I'm kind of writing most of the stuff, but they're tweaking and arranging it with me, which is really nice. But you know, I'm writing specifically in a certain kind of style. It's not just everything that's left over or falls out. Sure. You know, it's, it's kind of conscious efforts that make something coherent. Well, to get our third song on the board here. So Mekon started as a punk band. Then around 85, or a little before that, 83, introduced these folk elements and discovered the commonalities between British folk and country western, you know, American folk. So we get eventually to, well, by the funeral album, I mean, that's almost 
alt rock like that really could have worked <laughs> with the blistering guitars with the other stuff that was famous at the time i know that's part of the tragedy that it didn't get uh actually actually you know what rock and roll was not very popular that time loud noisy guitars were pretty unhip it was, it was kind of before nirvana sure blew up so you know we were kind of i don't know what we were we were always trying to do things we thought wouldn't be popular <laughs> And then I know that the style kind of became a little more, at least one of the things I read was one of the reasons you started the Waco Brothers is because you were originally channeling the country western stuff into Mekons, and then Mekons became, I don't know, more folky and eclectic, and so it wasn't going to pursue that formula that you wanted to drive further on. Is that accurate, or is it more just where you were and what the schedule was? And The Waco Brothers came out of something else, really. Me and Dean were thinking about classic country and western music and actually playing covers mm-hmm. of songs we liked so i don't really look back on that period of the mekons and, and think as much to do with what the waco brothers did later it was a very different process in my mind so what the mekons evolved to with the last couple albums so we're going to hear something off of natural the 2007 albums Cockermouth. so it's largely acoustic are these all played live at this point uh, it's pretty much live i think yeah. okay yeah in a little cottage up in the Lake District or barn, farmhouse or something. Mostly with acoustic instruments or things we just had at hand. And then we took it to a studio and did some vocals and put some bits and bobs on it. But mostly I think it's just what was... We recorded a bunch... We were in the middle of a tour and we had a couple of days off. So we stayed in the Lake District because it was pretty. And there were stone circles and things like that. And we just recorded a load of instrumentals didn't really have an idea what they would be and we used the instruments we had at hand which were largely acoustic it wasn't a proper recording studio so we just used the instruments we had and i imagine so it was likewise like not a lot of takes to get this instrumental no all right thematically before we actually play the song do you want to i mean it's got the uh, you actually even mentioned henry david thoreau at the end <laughs> And it sounds like it is reflecting the environment that you were talking about that you were in with the Standing Stones and the Cockermouth. That's the name of a, a town. Was that where you were or where what you were trying to... It's near there. Wordsworth was from Cockermouth. Yeah, we weren't far from Cockermouth. The nature imagery is reflecting Wordsworth. Is it? I know you mentioned with the last song, some of it kind of lifted from the author. Was some of this more directly influenced mm. from Wordsworth? Uh, there's an idea. No, it's actually uh, once... I was talking to a good friend of mine, Patrick Ayres, who's contributed to the Mekon stuff quite a bit as well, and he was talking about going out into the countryside. People in the 18th century, 17th century, used to go off into the countryside and to lose the world and to you know have these kind of spiritual moments with nature. And it's like in the Lake District, when you go out walking on these remote mountain trails, you're often confronted with high-tech RAF fighter bombers conduct low-level bombing practices. Uh, as he put it, swooping balletically rehearsing for Armageddon was his quote. Ah. So that's where that song comes from. Cause we, were, we, were, we were actually out in the... Spent, we spent quite a bit of time, you know, walking and trying to find pubs where we could have lunch. And so we recorded in the evening. And in the daytime, we were getting back to nature in the sort of wet, green nature of the Lake District. And it was interesting to see, be up on a hillside and see these planes coming in. So you, you, rather than getting away from the Napoleonic Wars, here you were, you know, walking. Yeah. 
I own a thumb piano. I've never gotten anything useful out of it for an actual track. Uh, so, so great that on multiple songs, you got Rico Bell, right? Playing the, uh, yeah, we had two actually. There's, there's quite a few tracks that have that on it on this record. We had two of them, the Imbira's with us. So I don't know. We just bought a load of stuff. I think it was the old town school folk music shop and it became a good little tool. Tough to play live, but we did play it live as well. Now, I know some of the charm and vitality of Mekon's music, as you even say on the early stuff that people didn't know how to play. There's an interesting mixture on here. Obviously, you know, you're all really good players by this point, but like the electric guitar is kind of out of tune (laughs) and you've got the violin. Susie's playing with no vibrato, pretty much. Is that just the folk style that you don't overplay it? I haven't even thought of any of those things. Okay. Is it really out of tune? How awful. The main electric guitar when it comes in and just, just doing the chords, there's something, yeah, it's a little jarring. And then, you know, you've, well, on multiple songs, you've got, I just thought this is a shtick. So you've got the talking and, you know, while the drums are getting their bearing. So it really sounds like this is the first time you're playing the song. It wasn't actually the first, right? It was. Yeah. We, okay. We were making it up as we sat there. All right. Yeah. And likewise, you've got Steve Goulding is an amazingly tight drummer and sort of the whole point of adding him in the first place, I guess other than you didn't want to play drums anymore, is to, it kicks it up a gear in terms of making it sound like a professional band. So he's playing on this too, right? Or, or was he? Yeah, he's playing, okay. but he's playing like a, this little box thing he found. Okay. Maybe he didn't even have that at the time. I think maybe he's playing like a snare drum on his lap or something like that. Okay, something that's not his typical like thing that he's really comfortable with. Everybody was out of their comfort zone. But... Or that somebody else is playing a shaker or something, but like it doesn't, you know, it's not locked in like the Wago Brothers record or something. And that was not the point. Yeah, no, we just made little soundscapes and thought about what we could do with them. So the vocals were, I think, put on later. Is it Sally and Susie doing the harmonies there, or is it Sarah doing the other her female voice? Oh, I think it's just Sally and um, Sally, Tom and Eric, I would have thought. You don't have to believe in the end. You have to believe this is the end. It sounds It sounds like two women. Maybe it's both Sally then. I would think maybe it's overdubbed Sally. All right. All right. Probably. Well, that would, that would explain. Yeah, with Funerals for the Wrong Corpse, I mean, you show off the with the echoes, the funeral, 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 like the plentitude of singers that you have at your disposal that everybody kind of gets to... Yeah, well, that's one of the things I enjoy most about the Mekons is that there's definitely five people singing lead. So when we play live, that's pretty great. I assume that takes a little more planning and arrangement than the instruments do. Or is it pretty much people's intuitions and just do it a few times and that's the way it works? I think you're closer there. (laughs) Okay. Well, again, so you've got some admirable restraint. You've got Tom who's singing lead on a lot of the stuff. Or is it just that he's not as comfortable harmonizing? So it's usually Rico that is the harmony over you. Is that right? Well, Rico understands okay. harmonies and Lou understands harmonies. Me, Sally and Tom, I have to say, if it doesn't come quickly, it's not going to happen. Sally always says she can't sing harmonies. So so she sings in unison with the, the lead a lot to thicken it out. Sometimes, yeah. At least in Memphis, Egypt, I noticed anyway. We have quite a lot of unison in the Mekons. Maybe she, sometimes she sings like an octave up. From- Do you read poetry for pleasure, or, or is the poetic influence in here from Tom, or is it a group? How, how do- I tend not to read actual poetry that much. <laughs> or the Eduardo Galeano thing, like who found that? Well, that's, or a, how do you- that's a very poetic history book, mm-hmm. so uh, I like that. <laughs> I don't know, we, I, think, I think, you know, we all read quite a lot stuff we pass things around and we talk about things 
I think we like to think of ourselves as part of a giant bubbling vat of human thought. And maybe we can be part of a conversation rather than creating original brilliant ideas that, you know, maybe there are no original brilliant ideas. Maybe it's just the way we filter and tinker with other good ideas that is interesting or more useful. So another thing that came out of the movie for me was somebody had described, like, you kind of discovered that you were pursuing music in the way that folk musicians do, in that, you know, as an art project, well, art project sounds, it sounds a little highfalutin. It doesn't sound like just some people kind of screwing around trying to... (laughs) The, well, uh, that's what we are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, where, where, the, where the purpose was, as it was described in the movie anyway, was not that I've got these songs that I've got to express, which is kind of maybe how your solo albums come about, that you write this material on your own over time, and then like, well, what am I going to do with it? Or let's throw this out to the band. But that this was more like people in the olden days, maybe before they had recording equipment. And it was a matter of, you know, it's a group activity. It's a social group activity. And so they'd get together with their instruments and just, you know, start vamping on the folk songs or the classic tunes or something. I think what you talk with the natural thing, it was just an attempt to see if we could make music in a space that wasn't a live gig or a recording Mm. studio. It would be amusing to sit around and maybe write tunes. They were meant to be demos or ideas for songs, but we liked the way they actually sounded. And then it became an album. And the whole concept of natural was kind of very in scare quotes, as my friend Terry Atkinson would say. Okay, so that makes sense as a experiment for that album. I guess I was projecting that back in time as the way that you had done it in the earlier days. How would you characterize it if it's not that? In the earlier days? Well, at least at the point where you were doing a funeral, since that's the one we were talking about. That was, you know, conceived and produced in a kind of pretty high-tech recording studio mm-hmm. and was recorded for a major label. So, And the songs were you and Tom demoing them for the most part, like a more traditional songwriting collaboration rather than a anything-goes-meat-grinder. There was a bit of just seeing what happened, but it was an interesting period because there were people who weren't, weren't in the band involved in the songwriting, so it was a part of a larger collective putting the songs together for that album. So I think that's... Almost every album is different. You know, it's almost every song has a different story in terms of how they come about. So it's hard to generalize over the years. Since folks heard a little bit of Memphis, Egypt at the beginning, how, do you have any, how did the process apply to that? I mean, that's kind of, here's a riff I came up with. <laughs> yeah, it was just two chords. And Tom and I were reading a book called Hammer of the Gods about Led Zeppelin. And the book made the music sound fantastic. And it made the way they described Led Zeppelin's music in the book was actually better than my experience of listening to Led Zeppelin's music. And we both agreed we should try and make an album that sounded as good as the descriptions of Led Zeppelin's music in the book. Nice. (laughs) And then that was our attempt. You know, that song, Memphis, Egypt, is also, I would say, I had a kind of outlet for the two-code rock with the three Johns. And I've been doing that for a long time, and Tom had been very involved. That He toured with us and been our sound guy. We really liked that sound the three Johns made. And I think we signed to a major label, and we wanted to do an album. We wanted to call it Rock and Roll, and we wanted to make it about the rock and roll business. And initially, the songs were going to be called things like The Publisher, The Agent, The A&R Man. But we kind of backed away from that because we thought we would get sacked even quicker than we were. But uh, there was a sort of sound of the live band the Mekons toured a lot in 1988 and we got more interested in the sort of basic rock and roll sound you could make with a band and what worked at gigs 
And I think that was a, also a reaction to the fact that the Three Johns had kind of combusted at that point and were no more. It's just people moving on to other projects or I was like making people dwell on the... <laughs> <laughs> breakup stories. No, it was a total disintegration for many different reasons. We have played since, we have got back together and we are good friends, but it was just it was just all too much. And the Mekons was always more socially comfortable. So you discovered that the basic rock and roll sound is what you're going for, and then the Mekons lineup right after that, the Fear and Whiskey lineup is adding accordion and violin and Three guitars, no. No, no, that was the no, that was the rock and roll album. Oh, okay, okay. I thought Three Johns was... Bef- when did that end? I'm getting my... About 88. Okay, I'm getting my... I guess I didn't realize there's that much overlap. I was... It ended on tour in America in December 1988. Gotcha. I was looking at that band as the interim thing in the Mekons break. No, okay. No, no. And then the Mekons... It was a parallel band to the Mekons. And then, for me, the Mekons took on what I was playing with the Mekons took on much more of what I've been playing with the Three Johns at that point. So that rock and roll album was, a, Tom and I both agreed we wanted to make an album that had this kind of electric rock kind of energy and get rid of all this, you know, the Mekons are a cozy little country folk band. And to make a big, you know, on a big rock and roll label, A&M, let's make a big rock and roll album. Well, listening to Fear and Whiskey or say, one would not think that's a cute little country folk band. But I guess you were talking a few years later. No, well, I know, but that's the way people were writing about it. It was like, (laughs) oh, look at the Mekons. They've gone away and listened to country music and made this strange record, you know. We just thought we were actually quite a good live band. The Three Johns were a very good live rock band. And the Mekons sort of became one in 1988. We played so much that by the end of that, that year, we were bristling and ready to go. And we had a kind of change of personnel. Lou came back in, and it was hard work making that album, the album that Memphis Egypt's on. Not everybody was kind of on board with that, but me and Tom wanted to really strip it down and make it sound kind of brutal. Some of it is. <laughs> so is Lou on the funeral song? Yeah. Yeah, okay. he's playing bass on it. Oh, he's playing bass. Okay, all right. So you're the third person that I've had on here who has played in a band with someone that played with Shriekback. So I need to <laughs> circling around. Speaking of super tight things that transcended country to become like a kick-ass rock thing, our last song here from the most recent 2016 Waco Brothers album that I just saw you guys live, and it was just an awesome rock show. I, what can I say? There was nothing that screamed out, you know, a bunch of Hank Williams standards to me in the energy that was coming from that stage. No, again, you know, that's how the band started, and then things change. I like the Waco Brothers very much because it's you don't really have to explain it. On the history isn't even that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's just about what happens when it's on stage and you know and with this album thankfully people have kind of accepted this album as a pretty exciting version of what the Wacos do so so i don't try to analyze song four but it's going down in history it's from the album of that name but going down it's one of those rock blues cliches and of course going down in history is a phrase although the way that I hear that you mean it here is it's more not being recorded in the annals of history, but being swallowed up by history, going under. Could be, could be either. I think it's a double meaning. It's one of them clever entendres that the British like so much. And then likewise, in the previous song, you've got all this, just all this rambling. <laughs> you've got the old uh, rambling guy, the Steve Martin. Yeah, ramble on, ramble on, baby. Just using that image in a song that's, kind of a Wordsworthian strolling in the, the fields. I don't know. It's a cool combination there. 
that's what people in Britain refer to themselves as. People who go walking in the wilderness are called ramblers. So. <laughs> okay, so it's not you an know? archaic thing there. It's no, you go, you ramble, ramble on. <laughs> Sing my song. All right, what's the next thing coming up? What are you working on now? Uh, I've got a bunch of festivals this summer, and I'm doing an album in Muscle Shoals uh, in November with Tony Newsom and Bethany Thomas, but the guys from Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section, David Hood is going to play bass on it, and Norbert Putnam, who was the original guys from Muscle Shoals, but moved up to Nashville and has played with everyone. He was the last guy to play with Elvis Presley, him and James Burton, playing down in the jungle room, I think a couple of weeks before Elvis died. He's just a really interesting guy, and he likes my stuff, and he invited me to go down to Muscle Shoals, and a bunch of guys have moved back there, and it seems like... Okay, that's the place to go. Well, I want to hear more Mekon, so I want to suggest, since you've already broken the ice with uh, having somebody put a Hammond B3 song in another country, do your writing session, use Skype, use one of the conference call things, and do a three-day transcontinental writing session so that you can then just record tracks <laughs> on each other's end. Just try it as a new... If you're trying to do something, something new every album... Then why try nobody being in the same room? Try, try completely inorganic Mekon. We've album. already we've already done that. You've done okay. <laughs> so is it? But there's the last one was 2011. No, no? We, had an, we had an album out last year called Jura, the Mini Mekons and Robbie Folks. Oh, Mini Mekons. I see. Oh, uh, yes. Okay. So I have I have heard some of this. I'm a slave to Spotify. If it's if it's not recorded under Mekons, then I'm not seeing. <laughs> Well, the mini Mekons, well, you're missing a lot then because we don't, right. we put, we put stuff out under different names to tease. And that's just, so it's the people that are in the U.S., so it's not, right? No, it's all recorded in the U.K., that actually. Oh, okay. So I was recorded in Scotland. All right. So I was thinking mini Mekons is when Tom is busy with other stuff. Is that, is that not right? Uh, what makes he, it mini? What, he, there were a few people were, were busy with other things. So it's just whatever partial. Yeah, and we had a guest. Robbie Folks was our special guest on that one. All right. Well, geez, thanks so much. I'm glad we could finally get this in. This is great. All right. Well, thank you, Mark. Nice to talk to you. Something to put in its place 
All right, John Langford. And I want to give a shout-out to Tim Quirk, who hooked me up with John, as well as with Chad from Beauty Pill earlier. Now, John is so prolific, so many projects, so many different approaches to music, there's no way we could even touch on all of it. I hope, first of all, if you've never heard the Mekons before, which I really hadn't before researching this band, you know, a song or two, but had never really taken them on, I didn't realize what a significant force they were in pop music, or... Well, whatever that genre is, that's not necessarily popular, but is neither classical nor jazz. So I found my voyage through their catalog over the course of a couple months very rewarding. Now, talking to John, it's a little difficult to do what I try to do on this podcast with someone whose methodology involves not overthinking things. But I do want to point out the great deal of difference between someone who is basically thoughtful and artistic and probably fairly obsessive, given how much he does, that person not overthinking things, and some bonehead who really couldn't overthink things. So despite John's reticence in delving in too much detail into the meaning of the lyrics or music theory or any of that, and it's very appropriate not to delve too far into those things, if not a lot of time was spent on those things, if they were very organic and natural, still you could tell he's got a definite ideology, a definite purpose behind everything that he does. There's definitely a lot to be learned from his approach, from his catalog, if you want more information on John, check out John Langford, J-O-N dot D-E. And the Mekon site is M-E-K-O-N-S dot D-E. I definitely recommend the film Revenge of the Mekons. He also mentioned the Three Johns, one of his side projects for a long time. And if you check out the really early, like late 70s Mekons albums, they're really a totally different thing, very similar to the Sex Pistols and Early Clash, you know, one of those classic punk bands. Now, if you enjoyed this interview... By all means, check out more interviews at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. You can also look us up on Facebook. Please go like our page. You can hear all the episodes from there. And hey, if you've got a minute, please go to the iTunes store to the Nakedly Examined Music page and leave a rating or review for the podcast. It'll help us get the word out. As will sharing the post for this episode or any of our episodes on Facebook. If you share it, let all of your friends see it, then they will know exactly how cool you are, which is pretty goddamn cool for listening to this. Looking forward, next episode, I talk to a bona fide composer, Sean Beeson, and then talk to a very smart hip-hop guy, a rapper, Tyler Hislop, a.k.a. Sacrifice. And then I'm super, super excited. I was able to record an interview with the drummer Bill Bruford, who is in Yes and King Crimson and his own band Bruford, and he had a jazz ensemble, Earthworks. Amazing drummer, really thoughtful guy. So please stay tuned. Keep on musicin'. This is Mark Linton Meyer signing off.